the garden. Just a quick heads up here. In this episode of Chips, we will be discussing issues associated with abortion, which some may find distressing. The year is 1972. You're part of an underground network of feminists in Chicago that provide illegal, at the time, abortion services to vulnerable pregnant people with few options. Despite the risk of imprisonment and the ways that your personal experiences may not always perfectly align with your activism, you persist. This might sound like a novel or a screenplay, but it's not. It's from what's called a live-action role-playing game, uh, which is sometimes abbreviated as LARP. It's called The Abortionists. Laura Hudson recently wrote an article about a number of female game designers creating games that they hope can change the minds of people who are against abortion. She spoke to a number of video game designers who are trying to incorporate discussion about abortion into their latest creations. You know, for many people who, you know, have strong feelings about abortion, sometimes those are based in abstraction. It's based on a theoretical notion of a fetus, a theoretical notion of uh, the morality of the situation. You know, I I find that the people who tend to be the most passionate about uh, making these types of games about uh, abortion are people who have known people who had abortions and the realities of the situation and the cruelties that can often result from treating it as an abstract moral notion are very concrete and very real to them and something that they very much want to communicate to other people. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I'm looking at whether video games can be a powerful tool for activists who are trying to change people's minds. It could be that one or two games that aren't really on topic get some legs and some kind of cult following. But it's more likely that one could do an intervention in a popular game uh, that everyone's playing online and small interventions in something like that actually might reach more people and be more effective. So it's, it's an interesting question. This is Chips With Everything. Also, let me let me unplug uh, the little water fountain I have for my cat in the background. She can live without the fountain for an hour. She'll be fine. <laughs> Producer Danielle rang Laura a few weeks ago to find out more about some of the video games being designed to tackle the issue of abortion. To start, they talked about Trapped, a card game turned free web browser game. You're presented essentially with a somewhat randomized situation. You might be a certain age, a certain racial background, you might speak English or not speak English. And all of these different elements can create different barriers, uh, you know, to your ability to get an abortion. So it basically starts out with the premise that you've decided to get an abortion, and then you try to do it. And uh, what it sort of illustrates is the, you know, the many, many different hurdles that you have to jump over, particularly in America and particularly in certain states. So you sort of get to see as the scenario moves along uh, how much money gets spent and how much time passes. Uh, so you can easily see how a woman, even if she starts right away uh, working to get an abortion, uh, just might find herself essentially timed out. So... 
often when people play video games, they're playing for some kind of reward. Uh, you win something or you beat something. Or What do players hope to achieve for their characters in games like Trapped? What is the end goal? In video games, people you know, often tend to talk from a game design perspective about what's called a, a win state. And that's, you know, Mario gets, you know, to the end of the game and he beats Bowser and you've won. Uh, and these games don't really work in that sort of way. I think because, you know, a lot of games are power fantasies. They're fantasies about being powerful. These games are not fantasies about being powerful. They're not fantasies at all. They are expressions of human experience. And in many cases, they're about being powerless. Trapped is about, in many cases, feeling powerless. And so I think part of the experience is that frustration. Some games focus on places with particularly restrictive abortion laws. One example is Choice Texas, a game made in Twine, which is a tool for creating interactive fiction where players read text and interact by clicking links. As opposed to Trapped, where you sort of have a more randomized scenario presented to you, this one essentially creates five different paths of five different women. Uh, again, uh, from very different backgrounds, and they allow you to play through, from their perspective, essentially the decisions that they make around their pregnancy. And you know, within each woman's situation, different factors come into play, but ultimately you get to choose. There, there are many scenarios in which you can choose to continue the pregnancy. Now, one of these games mentioned in Laura's article that I've actually already played is Fantastic Fetus. This game has a cute, pixelated aesthetic and plays a bit like a Tamagotchi. It's set in Poland, a predominantly Catholic country where abortion laws are strict and almost became stricter through proposed legislation back in 2016. After tens of thousands of citizens took to the streets dressed in black for a mass protest that later became known as the Black Protest, that proposed bill was voted down. But this game asks you to imagine being pregnant in a world where it became law. It's quite different to the two other games we've mentioned. One of the primary differences is that the character you play as explicitly wants this pregnancy. They want it to continue. And, you know, much of the actual mechanics of the game revolve around when the when the character is hungry, you feed them. When they're tired, you allow them to sleep, you clean up the apartment. You know, it's it's again sort of Tamagotchi-esque, almost, you know, similar to The Sims. It's sort of a life simulator of someone uh, who is pregnant. And as the pregnancy progresses, there'll be sort of these dream sequences that take place in between while your character is asleep. And it's sort of, it is, it's a fantastical element where you can imagine what your fetus will look like in the future. And, you know, there's almost a silly element to it. You can give it a unicorn horn, you can give it a halo like a little angel. But sort of the idea is you're building this fantasy version of the future child that you imagine. When I played Fantastic Fetus, I knew the game was about abortion, but I didn't realise quite how that was going to fit in until the end, when my character had their baby and it turned out to be nothing like the image I'd been carefully customising throughout the game. It was actually quite a shock as I realised the point they were making. 
And there are a couple of sort of darker notes where the character will say something like, you know, something doesn't seem totally right to me, but, you know, maybe the doctor said it was okay and I shouldn't worry. And spoilers, uh, but when you get to the very end of the game, your child is born and you are presented with a pixelated but nonetheless very stark image of a fatal fetal abnormality. Your child is essentially born with no chance of living. What it's supposed to represent is the experience that many women would have uh, had these laws passed. But, you know, I, I do think that it speaks to, I think, a larger through line in a lot of these games, uh, which is, you know, don't be so sure. Uh, and it, again, it's it's easy to have certain beliefs and certain hardline beliefs from a remove uh, from the actual human experience of the suffering that a lot of people undergo. Uh, and, and I think that for a lot of these games, the goal is to sort of close that gap and wherever you end up coming down on it, at least allow it to be informed by those human experiences. These games are varied, but all seem designed in their own way to present a pro-choice perspective. But I find it difficult to imagine that games like these could actually convince anyone who is opposed to abortion. Laura says the designers understand that difficulty. You know, I do think that there are some limits to, you know, what are called quote-unquote empathy games. You know, I I don't think that playing a two-hour game as a marginalized person, for example, can fully initiate you into their experience. What I do think it can do is I think it can start to open some doors. It can expose you to something that you've never seen before. And I think particularly at times when I think people are inclined to sort of close up in their in their own bubbles. I think when you look at what tends to change people's hearts around politics, it's not usually because somebody made a really good argument. You know, um, as as much as I'd lo- love to believe in, in, in the pure power of debate uh, to change minds, I don't often think that that's the case. Uh, I think a lot of what changes people's hearts, particularly around divisive issues, is knowing someone or meeting someone who is personally affected by it. Because again, then it's not an abstraction anymore. Uh, it's a person. After the break, I look at whether we really can change opinions through video games, given how difficult it is to get people to listen to views that oppose their own. Being embodied and being a political activist is one thing, but that means you're already convinced, right? So I think where games have an interesting potential is to nudge points of view and to think about ways in which we can have a debate among other players and experiment. We'll be back after this. I'm Emma John, and I'm sorry. I lied to you. It's the spin! I said we'd be happy if England won the World Cup, but lost the Ashes. It's not true. I want it all. I know it's greedy, but positioning the urn next to the World Cup on Ben Stokes' mantelpiece would make this the ultimate summer for English cricket. So join us on the spin as we turn ourselves into emotional wrecks all over again. It couldn't be as nerve-wracking as the World Cup final. Could it? It's The Spin! The Spin is supported by NatWest. 
Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Before the break, Laura Hudson told us about just some of the video games that have been designed to help players understand what it's like for people considering an abortion. It's an attempt to change the opinions of those who oppose termination of pregnancy. But how influential can video games actually be? My name is Mary Flanagan. I'm a professor at Dartmouth College, and I run the Tilt Factor Games Research Lab at Dartmouth College. So you founded Tilt Factor back in 2003. What exactly is it, and what's the kind of aim? Um, The aim of my research lab is to really uh, ask hard questions about society and culture through games and design projects. Uh, So I'm really trying to use play for pro-social impact. On Tilt Factor's website, the company poses the question, can we make a more just and equitable world with games? Before I found out the answer, I wanted to know why Mary felt the need to ask the question. Well, I think, um, you know, as someone who's also an artist um, and really concerned with social justice issues, however we may define that term, it's, it's really important that we actually see the impact of what we're making on an everyday level and try to figure out if, if we can make the world a better place through what we make as, as creators. I think it's a creative person's responsibility to bring a critical eye on society and culture. So in your 16 years of working at Tilt Factor, have you been able to make a more just and equitable world with games? Yes. Well, we try to make the world a better place. And how we do that is really figuring out what games are doing, you know, underneath the hood, so to speak. How do we actually get games to to really reflect our aims? And as designers... How do we know what we're making actually is following through on our intention? What are some of the best examples of video games specifically that you've made that have changed opinions or behaviors? Can you tell me some of your success stories? Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got a really interesting uh, set of video games to um, increase college and university students' awareness and efficacy of bystanders especially in incidents of sexual violence and sexual assault situations. Um, So we've actually created games that alleviate relationship violence and stalking um, as bystanders. We we position people as bystanders. And we've shown that the gameplay is an effective way to introduce this concept of being a bystander. But we've done it through a technique that's really unique to what we do. And this is something that has taken a long time to develop which is a kind of stealth embedding of the ideas. Can you explain that a little more, just so I can kind of picture it? So we've found that when players are actually confronted with a topic, and it may be a topic they don't agree with, or they they don't think about, or they have some resistance to, perhaps uh, thinking about sexual assault and violence is something um, they've heard about in a in a university class or they or, or they've experienced firsthand or they don't want to think about. What we try to do is put people in situations where they're open and they can explore a world or they can play a game that is like a trivia game, but it actually underneath the hood is shifting attitudes, mindsets, and possibly behaviors. This is one of the big differences between the work of Mary and the team at Tilt Factor and the designers we heard about in the first half of the show. 
If you're playing something like Fantastic Fetus or Trapped, you can probably immediately work out the theme of the game. Mary says that the research they have carried out over the years has shown that if you want to change opinions, you're better off hiding the social issue in a game about something else, rather than taking the in-your-face approach. We have found that if we hit a project head-on, if we say, this, this game is about bias, it's actually the least effective thing we could do. Also, oh, it has to be very subtle and the players don't necessarily know what the point of the game is? I think it has to be subtle and allow for play. As we know, play is open. Play is free. As soon as someone feels manipulated in play, it doesn't feel fair anymore and it doesn't feel like a game. I suppose one big question is that even if one of your games does have the ability to change hearts and minds, how do you get people who don't want to engage with another perspective to actually play it? Well, part of it is just it doesn't look like another perspective. <laughs> so, for example, our game about um, sexual violence is geared towards freshman university students as a kind of welcome to college alien adventure comic book. <laughs> it, it doesn't look at all like um, it's doing bystander intervention training, in part because people put up psychological defenses very quick. So earlier we heard about game designers who've created a variety of games that aim to get people to understand the difficulties that a pregnant person can face when considering having an abortion. And a lot of those games are very obviously about abortion. So do you think that it would be difficult in those cases to actually change anyone's opinions because it's so obviously out there what the game is about? Well, you know, I think it would have to be researched to see if a game that's dead on about the subject matter can actually recruit new people thinking about it and shift people's perspectives. We do have this idea that games put us in the shoes of another person and that games and especially VR experiences can help us develop empathy. But we don't actually, unless we study this stuff from a psychological perspective, we don't really know how players are going to react, what kind of psychological defenses they'll bring. It, it could be that one or two games that are really on topic get some legs and some kind of cult following. But it's more likely that one could do an intervention in a popular game uh, that everyone's playing online and small interventions and something like that actually might reach more people and be more effective. So it's, it's an interesting question. Some of the designers we discussed earlier see their games as a form of activism. But while Mary believes some games can have a place in the world of activism, she doesn't think they'll ever fully replace more traditional acts, like taking to the streets in protest. Being embodied and being a political activist is one thing, but that means you're already convinced, right? So I think where games have an interesting potential is to nudge points of view and to think about ways in which we can have a debate among other players and experiment. Um, that's a different kind of activism. It's a more, uh, it, it, it's a softer kind of uh, engagement. And I think if, if the right hook is applied to the game, it might get some traction. The thing is, when players of popular games could play Fortnite or play another kind of small experimental game, where is the venue for that? For example, we have venues for experimental films and, and documentary films, as well as venues for Hollywood films. We don't necessarily have really interesting venues, except the internet, which is very large. <laughs> 
So you said there that you don't think there's really a replacement for, you know, being embodied, taking to the streets in protest, but that maybe games could act as a softer form of activism. Do you think the answer then is just that we need both? Oh, yes, we need both. But we also, most of all, need more research on what's happening in games and electronic culture. There's a lot of not great research out there. Uh, a, a, a survey after a game um, about how much someone liked it is not an indicator of psychological change. So so really, the games, you know, I, I encourage everyone to really look at what's published in the research papers and to see where we're actually seeing shifts and changes. I've long argued that video games are yet another way that we can present ideas and ask questions about all sorts of topics. I even wrote a book about it, 10 Things Video Games Can Teach Us About Life, Philosophy and Everything. But as Mary suggests, it does seem to have less impact when the game is obviously about some particular issue. As the medium continues to mature, I'm sure we'll see more designers incorporating these kinds of topics into their games in more effective ways. I'd like to thank Laura Hudson and Mary Flanagan for talking to us this week. There will be links to both Laura's article and Tilt Factor's website on this week's episode description on The Guardian website. As always, make sure to send in any ideas you might have about interesting stories we should be covering on the podcast. Just email them to chipspodcast at theguardian.com. But that's it for this week. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.